Hello and welcome everyone who's catching this live and for those who are catching it recorded, welcome as well. For this discussion, I'm responding to a few, a very few, comments from Kristen McShaffrey's comments from the Kept Pure 2022 conference. He had a devotion, I think it was the Friday evening devotion, and it was topiced First uh, Peter 3, 15 and 16. I think he ended up reading from verse 13 to 16. But most of his presentation was, I think, by and large, uncontroversial. Uh, some applications, of course, he makes to the particular concerns of the kept pure crowd. But a lot of what he had to say is more or less what I would agree with. There's one or two points that I'd like to address because I think they come up and perhaps are understood a little bit wrongly. So I wanted to try to get it out of here and address them in a gracious way because of course, Pastor McShaffrey deserves grace, not just by being someone with whom we disagree, but also as a minister of the gospel, we should be extra careful in how we address such men. And I'm doing so as best I can in, in that way. So you'll see his video here. I don't know how to line my finger up with the video on the screen, but in any event, you'll see that his video there. I'm just using it for the purpose of commenting on it. He hasn't endorsed this, nor do I endorse everything he says. And this is just how commentary works. I plan to play him at 1x speed, although I think he could probably be sped up a little bit without any loss of understanding. But since there's very little to cover from his material, then I will just play it at normal speed and hopefully it will be easy to follow along. In the background, you may notice uh, below him and above him, the background there is just the Westminster Assembly debate on liberty of conscience, I believe. So in any event, here we go. So here's a quick survey and also a recommendation to close. Apologetic model number one, there are those who like to give evidential answers more than anything else. And so first of all, before he continues, I agree with him that that is one model of apologetics. It's an evidential model. I don't agree with that model, although I'd much rather have people preaching the gospel and offering evidences than not preaching the gospel. So between the two of not preaching the gospel and sitting at home and thinking, I'm so great, I'm not offering evidential apologetics versus actually going out and bringing the gospel to people and doing so in a way that I think is suboptimal. I'd rather the people doing it suboptimally than not doing it at all. But uh, for reasons, partly for the reasons that Pastor McShaffrey is about to say, I tend to agree that it's not the best way and it's fundamentally a flawed way. But let's continue. And unrelated example, if you're debating the age of the earth, we're going to point you to rocks and to fossils as they're apologetic. That's the. So I don't know to what extent people point to rocks and fossils as an apologetic for Christianity. Oftentimes we have to look at the rocks and fossils when the rocks and fossils are offered as some kind of disproof or evidence against Christianity. We could, literally everything that exists, 
comes from God. Literally everything that exists, including every rock and every fossil that ever exists dead and ever will exist, is evidence of God. That's true because God's the creator. Therefore, everything he's made is evidence of him, of what he has done. The same way that if you see a Picasso in a museum, that's evidence of Picasso. So everything that exists in creation is evidence of God, not in exactly the identical way, but in an analogous way. So you could present rocks and fossils as evidence of God, but usually you end up debating over rocks and fossils in order to help someone understand better why rocks and fossils don't pose an issue with respect to trusting the word of God, trusting the historical reliability of the scriptures and so on and so forth. But I, I continue. Let, let's have, let him continue. And the naturalist model. If you're debating textual criticism, they will point. Okay, well, before we get to textual criticism, I think he'll come back to the rocks in a minute. Maybe I'm mistaken. But uh, before we get to textual criticism on the rocks and fossils, an interesting point is there are some ways to address the rocks and fossils without getting into, you know, questioning whether or not the laboratories have done the right tests, the right physical tests and done the right physical examinations. You can talk about rocks and fossils without getting into those details by getting into the assumptions behind the use of the rocks and fossils by pointing out that there is an, a, a network of assumptions, a foundation that's uh, not just one assumption, but many assumptions layered on other assumptions that are used in the interpretation of that evidence. And I think he talks a little bit about the interpretation of evidence a little bit later. But we can and should be ready to handle those questions of evidence, not necessarily, like I said, not necessarily by questioning, did they really follow the scientific method when they analyzed this? But sometimes there's other flaws to the process. The problem is not that science gives us an answer and religion gives us a different answer and never the twain shall meet because the same God who created everything is the God, the same God who gave us the scriptures. So there's not an actual contradiction between the two, even if our understanding of one or the other is flawed. And I would just point out, there are a lot of people who are doing great work in this area. Donnie uh, is one that I could point you to. I've debated on his, as you, as everyone who's watching this probably knows, I've debated over on his channel several times, and he has some excellent discussion of the topic that you can check out there. I'm going to leave it on that point for now, but remember, he's just said, first the rocks and fossils, now let's turn to textual criticism. And uh, let him give his comment first, and then I'll respond a little bit in two or three different ways. So. Let's hear what he has to say. ...to manuscripts and papyri, but there's a problem with textual criticisms as they're apologetic. That's the evidentialist model. If you're debating textual criticism, they will point you to manuscripts and papyri, but there's a problem with the evidentialist model, and it's this. So... He said, if you're debating textual criticism, they'll point you to manuscripts and papyri. So I think that Pastor McShaffrey is comparing people who disagree with the privileged TR position, to put it in terms that I hope won't offend Pastor McShaffrey, but this position where he privileges the Textus Receptus or some version of it or some edition of it to a level that's above where it should be. 
that the basis of objections sometimes does come from the field of textual criticism. But keep in mind that textual criticism is a, an examination of evidence. That is true. So it's evidential in that sense. But it's not premised on scientific naturalism in the same way that uh, naturalistic accounts or naturalistic reverse projections of history based on the rocks and fossils is a, a naturalistic inquiry because there is in let's say in, in the journals of paleontology whatever journals those are there's not an underlying assumption of divine preservation of anything their work that doesn't guide their work that doesn't really inform their work there are assumptions that they make, many assumptions. Some of them good, valid assumptions, some of them terrible assumptions, but there are a lot of assumptions that are made. And sometimes it's those assumptions that are made that are worth getting behind and figuring out and, and thinking over and thinking more carefully about. And the same might be true of textual criticism. There may be aspects of textual criticism that involve various assumptions. And when people take textual criticism to the next level and question the veracity of scripture, question whether or not scripture is what it claims to be, and suggest that it's merely a human composition or uh, this, the subject of redaction that's not guided by the Holy Spirit, not inspired by the Holy Spirit, that's problematic because the assumptions that are made are wrong assumptions. But when it comes to this topic, we're going to see in a minute, there are believing assumptions that go behind believing textual criticism that are different from unbelieving assumptions through that, that could be performed and sometimes are performed that can result in more serious variation. That said, the difference between unbelieving textual criticism, leaving out form criticism for the moment, leaving out the most radical form criticism and, and related levels of analysis, but focusing just on what's usually referred to as textual criticism, there's not that big of a different result that arises because there's not that many problematic assumptions that are made on the naturalistic side. It's not because textual criticism is a uniquely secular thing, although textual criticism is performed on other types of texts than the Bible. It's not as important in those other cases, but it is performed. People do want to know what was, as best we can find out, what was the original reading of Homer's work? Obviously, from what we know, I shouldn't say obviously, from what we know, Homer himself may not have penned any of the, the Iliad or the Odyssey, but we'd like to try, for historical curiosity, we'd like to try to figure out what was the early form of the Iliad and the Odyssey? What did that look like uh, 200 years, 300 years after it was originally created? When it was first penned, what did it look like? We'd love to figure that out. But of course, there's lots of challenges. One is there's not that many copies, not that many early copies, of the work. And also there's other issues, which is that 
making changes to the work to improve it, to make it better, to make, to make it more acceptable, smooth it out. These are much more freely done in a work that's merely of cultural significance than in a work that's inspired by God. And God hasn't promised to protect the Iliad and the Odyssey. God has promised to protect the scriptures of the Old and New Testament. So there are some assumptions that are different, but many assumptions are the same. So scribes do what scribes do. They make human mistakes, but those human mistakes are by and large correctable mistakes. So we'll come back to this in, a, in just a little bit, but it's, it is a bit of apples and oranges. It's also a bit of apples and oranges because remember McShaffrey's opponents on textual criticism are mostly believers, not unbelievers approaching the world through the lens of scientific naturalism. They're supernaturalists, men like James White, as an example. He's one of the frequent targets of the Kept Pure Conference. And he is a believing scholar in this area. He's not in that area in the same, you know, in the same sense that, uh, you know, the people who are involved in the production of the TCM are in that area, but he's someone who's written the King James Only Controversy and who has debated and lectured on the subject of textual preservation for quite a while. So in any event, he's one of the kind of frequent targets in this area, and he's a believer. He's not an unbeliever. And comparing that to the atheistic or agnostic objections to Christianity based on the fossil record is... I'm trying to be generous, but it's it's a misleading comparison. But let's continue. Technically speaking, there is no such thing as bare evidence. There's no such thing. He's right. There's no such thing as bare evidence. But while he's right about that, it doesn't have a particular relevance to this discussion. Yes, it's true. There's no such thing as brute facts, bare evidence. Evidence requires interpretation. But you can't just say there's no such thing as brute facts. There's no such thing as bare evidence. You need to have an explanation or a reason why you don't need an explanation for evidence because evidence exists and people do interpret it. Some often they do wrongly interpret it, but helping them understand why they're wrongly interpreting it can be extremely helpful. And it would be extremely helpful if there were compelling answers from the Kept Pure Conference folk on the troubling textual critical questions. Anyone staying in the Dallas this weekend has ready proof at hand. Take one of those boat rides, look at all the beautiful rock structures, and tell me, what do you see? Proof of millions and millions of years or proof of a global flood? Same evidence, opposite conclusions, because Evidence requires interpretation. That's why the evidentialist model of apologetics is insufficient in and of itself. So I guess he raises a, a good point, which is that there are some like Answers in Genesis folks who do seem to go quickly to the evidence to fight the battle for creation from the fact that there is evidence of a global flood uh, but even then, I think mostly 
I could be wrong, but I think mostly they do actually take a presuppositional approach. I've heard Ken, Ken Ham provide a nice presuppositional explanation, and he's one of the leaders of that group. So, I don't know, not in a formal sense, maybe, but one of the notable speakers. Model number two. So uh, I think at this point, it makes sense for me to stop sharing this, not because he doesn't say good things or because I disagree with anything that he says, but actually because I want to address a related but separate issue. <clears throat> and that related but separate issue is the issue of one of my favorite authors, Francis Turton. And Francis Turton is the reason I'm named Turton fan. I don't agree with absolutely everything he's ever said on anything, but I am a fan. So, and again, still the same background. Uh, I will try to increase the font size on here a bit. And you can see this, this particular article is at the Bible Researcher. It's bible-researcher.com. I'm not personally familiar with Michael Marlowe to give you a recommendation one way or another, but I just come here because he's kindly, back apparently in 2003, kindly gone through and, and grabbed some of Francis Turton's comments on textual, critici textual critical issues. And there are a number of controversial points that Turton raises. Some of them are points on which I would probably disagree with him. But by and large, I agree with him, not just on textual criticism issues in terms of how to do textual criticism, but also the issue of uh, bibliology more generally. I think, you know, in his bibliology section, section two, I would tend to agree with all 21 points that he raises and maybe with some kind of reservations about one or two or needing to provide some clarification about what I mean on one or two. But, you know, at least, you know, at least 19 out of the 21 points, it's going to be more or less, I'm okay with everything he said. So let's, let's focus on these points that are raised, Marlowe raises them in his summary of, of what Turton said. And I believe these are quotations from the Institutes of Atlantic Theology. I'm going to read through some of them and comment on them as I go. So this one says, the question does not concern the irregular writing of words or the punctuation or the various readings, which all acknowledge do often occur, or whether the copies which we have so agree with the originals as to vary from them not even in a little point or letter. So there is a position known as this jot and tittle position, which suggests that the reformers thought that the TR was jot and tittle, the original. This should, I hope, settle the, the debate that that is not Turretin's position. He's not saying that every single point or letter of the copies which we have, and by copies which we have, I do think that he means not only the manuscripts, but also the printed editions, and we'll see why in just a second. But he says, that is not the issue. Rather, the question is whether they differ so differ as to make the genuine corrupt and to hinder us from receiving the original text 
as a rule of faith and practice? And of course, with me, his answer is no, they don't. There are these legitimate textual corruptions, but they are minor. They are not major. They don't prevent, they don't make the original corrupt. Although obviously there is some use of the term corrupt, but he means corrupt in the sense of not authentic anymore. And that would hinder us from rece receiving the original text as a rule of faith and practice. No, we can. We can receive the original as a rule of faith and practice, and we should, and we ought to do so. The question is not as to the particular corruption of some manuscripts or as to the errors which have crept into the books of particular editions through the negligence of copyists or printers or printers. So Turretin is not saying that the manuscripts were Oh, a little bit flawed, but the print, the print editions, golden, good to go, no problems. No, he acknowledges that. He says, in fact, all acknowledge the existence of many such small corruptions. And indeed, they are small corruptions. And he says many. They're not just a few. There are many, but they're small. Now, of course, small is in relative terms. Different people think different ones are small. Other people think some of them are big. The question is whether there are universal corruptions and errors so diffused through all the copies, both manuscript and edited, as that they cannot be restored and corrected by any collation of various copies or of scripture itself and of parallel passages. Are there real and true and not merely apparent contradictions we deny the former. So in other words, he's saying he denies the former. It means he says they're not real and true. They're just merely apparent contradictions. But notice as well, where does he go? He goes to collation of various copies. That's the very boogeyman of textual criticism of examining the manuscripts. <clears throat> he didn't have the what we refer to now as the papyri. He didn't have those, or at least didn't have access to them in order to be able to examine them and consider them. But methodologically, that's where he wants to go. He wants to go to the copies. He wants to go to the manuscripts and the editions, the editions being the printed versions. He's, he's willing to consider them both. And the reasons are, one, the scriptures are inspired by God. So you see, he does have a presupposition that's a believing presupposition. This isn't motivated by scientific naturalism. And we agree. The word of God cannot lie. Once again, not a naturalistic assumption. And we agree with him. Cannot pass away and be destroyed. Same. Shall endure forever. Same. And is truth itself. Same. For how could such things be predicated if it contained dangerous contradictions? And if God allowed either the sacred writers to err and to slip in memory or incurable blemishes to creep in, to it. So the question is not whether there are any blemishes, but whether these blemishes, if any, are incurable. And they wouldn't be able to be the sole rule in faith of practice if they didn't have unimpaired integrity. Unimpaired integrity, though, doesn't mean no minor mistakes, no minor things that need to be fixed, no small mistakes that can be improved. But that's exactly what the job of the textual critic inside the Christian religion, that's the job of what a textual critic is, is to improve and to remove and to get rid of the minor issues and to search after 
the original text. For since nothing can be held as the object of faith, faith, how could the scriptures be authentic if they were liable to contradictions and corruptions? Nor can it be said that these corruptions are only in smaller things which don't affect the foundation of the faith. For, one, for if the authenticity of scripture is taken away, how could our faith rest on what remains? So in other words, Turton is saying he's not going the, the route of certain... I don't even know if they're, if these people would actually be considered progressive anymore, but certain progressives in the, I don't know, in the 70s or 80s, when they will try to say things like, well, you know, some parts of the Bible are just riddled with errors. They have mistakes in them, but there's the central points and the central points are good. Maybe today you do sometimes see that where people will kind of say, well, I mean, the gospels, what Jesus says in the gospels more or less is right. And he did die, buried, and rose again. But, you know, a lot of the details, you know, forget about those. And Paul's writings, uh, you know, Paul Paul has his issues. They'll say things like this. And Turgeon is not okay with that. He's not willing to say that there's just these, there's lesser things and those, those doctrines are up for grabs. But the main doctrines are there. Because, but remember, if you were just reading this by itself, there, nor can it be said that these corruptions are only in smaller things. You might think, if you stood this by itself, that he was saying there are no corruptions. You'd be wrong. We just saw where he acknowledged that there are little mistakes, little things that can be corrected. <clears throat> and he says, if corruption is admitted in those things of lesser importance, why not in greater? Uh, and he continues on arguing that same point. Nor can we believe that uh, God would take care to have infallible scriptures and then not take care to preserve them, which again, we, we agree with Turretin. And there's four main points that he makes for this. The first is that God has providence. He's able to control what happens in history. And therefore he's able to make sure that the scriptures are preserved. The second point he raises is the religion of the Jews and their care in watching over the Old Testament scriptures which indeed there is abundant evidence of that fact. And then the diligence of the Masoretes who placed their marks as a hedge around the law. And indeed the Masoretes are to be thanked for preserving the Hebrew scriptures, even when Christians were not being diligent in doing that. The number of copies, number and multitude of copies, so that even if some could be corrupted, yet all could not. Now this, assumption there were presupposition is one that's shared by people like Dr. White and myself who hold to some form of reasoned eclecticism. What we're saying is there is no way that God allowed all the manuscripts, all the copies of scriptures to be corrupted. There, there are individual manuscripts. Yes. Now for some, there is a test, and I think Will Kennedy had some puzzle he wanted me to uh, respond to along this way of like, show me which Bible, put it, you know, hold it up for the, the screen, the Bible you believe is the one without any mistakes in it or something like this. And I held up at the time uh, some copy of the New Testament, which has the entire text of the New Testament in it. I know that it does 
because it summarizes all the manuscript copies that we have. And we know that this point number four is true. The number and multitude of copies is such that even if some of the manuscripts could be corrupted, yet all could not. So not all the manuscripts have been corrupted. Therefore, if we have a good summary of the manuscripts, we also have all the words of scripture. Now, this part, this in this next paragraph, obviously that's uh, Mr. Marlowe's or Dr. Marlowe's, I'm not sure his educational status, and ultimately it doesn't matter. I'm not gonna focus on his words. Notice again, although we don't give the scriptures absolute integrity, remember before he said, well, don't say that they're just minor differences. What he meant was differences that just affect lesser doctrines. No, they're not. It's not like there's like a gospel core that's unaffected, but the rest of doctrine is up for grabs. No, all that we need to know is in scripture in terms of what we need as a rule for faith and and life. But at the same time, Turretin acknowledges we do not give absolute uh, excuse me, we, we, although we give absolute integrity to scriptures, he's willing to say, he's willing to use this term absolute integrity without saying that there are no typos, that there are no places where additional collation is valuable or useful. And he says, we do not think that the copyists and printers were inspired. This is key. Now I understand the kept pure crowd would eschew such a position. They would not say that they were inspired. There are some uh, people in the outer orbits of their, their world or who have views that are somehow similar to their views who take that kind of extreme position and basically suggest that some of the printers were inspired or or act in such a way as though they think that the printers must have been inspired or something equivalent to being inspired. But thankfully, Pastor Shaffrey is not such a, or Pastor Mick Shaffrey is not such a person. And I, I don't think Pastor Mullen either. And I, I point this out because this obviously was written long before they were born. This was written by Turton hundreds of years before they were born dealing with an objection to their his position and the reformed position at the time and to our position position of people like myself and dr james white but remember we don't think that the copyists and printers were inspired but just that the providence of god watched over so that although many errors might have crept in it has not so happened but that they can be easily corrected or by a collation of others corrected. So there are errors that crept in, but not such errors that they can't be corrected. They can be corrected. That's why one of Dr. White's illustrations that he likes to use is the one about the 10,000 piece jigsaw puzzle with 10,010 pieces, or 10,020 or 10,100, but there's a, there are extra pieces, but we have all the pieces. We're not missing any of the pieces. Maybe in a few places, someone's put in the wrong piece, but the right piece is somewhere there still. It's not missing, it's not gone. Therefore, the foundation of the purity and integrity of the sources is not to be placed in the freedom from fault of men. 
So it's, it's not a situation where Scrivener's pinnacle of the DR is free from fault, or that the King James Version, the the TR in English for people who ascribe to that way, way of thinking, there that is not their freedom from fault. That's not where we find our purity and integrity, but in the providence of God, which, however, men employed in transcribing the sacred books might possibly mingle various errors, always diligently took care to correct them, or that they might be corrected easily, either from a comparison with scripture itself, the internal evidences of scripture, or from more approved manuscripts. Manuscripts, going back to the manuscripts, this is not a worldly, secular, anti, presuppositional view. It's one that's fully harmonious with believing presuppositions. It was not necessary, not necessary therefore, to render all the scribes infallible. This is kind of the Bart Ehrman, obviously this anachronistic to think of Bart Ehrman back at the time of Turgeon, but his view where essentially the only way to preserve the scriptures infallibly would be to have infallible scribes but only to direct them that the true meaning, true reading may always be found out. This book far surpasses all others in purity. Uh, he points out, the Marlowe points out uh, some comment on, by Turretin on the word Canaan. Uh, and Turretin argues that the word found, Canaan found in Luke 33, 36 is spurious, is proved in various ways. And he uh, he argues that, I apologize, my my internet connection may go soft on me and in terms of just dropping me out altogether in the next uh, 10 or 15 minutes. So hopefully if it does, we'll, we'll pick up another time. But in any event, let me uh, focus back on these words. He provides a number of ways to address this issue. And in fact, he his, his first argument is an argument from the Old Testament. This uh, second one is an argument from a Chaldee paraphrase, which is like the uh, some Jewish tradition. Josephus, additional Jewish tradition, the sacred chronology would not be disturbed or brought into doubt in the history of Moses if these years are inserted between them and then another which he provides a possible resolution and then it says it does not exist in any of the codices our visa testifies that it is not found in his most ancient manuscript so so you know the i this is one of those cases where you think why is it that the folks at kept pure and, and similar approaches. Why do they keep trying to claim Turretin and the other uh, 17th century reformers as their own? This is not Turretin at his most controversial among, this is not where he's teasing twists and, and, and fighting with other reformers. Although uh, obviously I'm not saying that there's absolute uniformity of agreement between all the, all the reformed men at this time on this topic even, but what he's arguing here is not that controversial. And what he's arguing is look at the manuscript evidence. He, he thinks there's an, an issue that's worth discussing. 
yes, it's a minor issue. It doesn't directly affect any major doctrines. He's still nevertheless willing to discuss it, willing to argue about it, and willing to appeal along, along one of many of his arguments to the manuscript evidence to address this issue. Now, uh, he talks about the purity of the sources, and he had to deal with issues of the Roman Catholics of his day trying to assert that the Greek and Hebrew scriptures were so corrupted that we couldn't rely on them and we have to rely on the Vulgate. You might expect to hear something similar today among folks who want to promote the King James in English as the authoritative source, not, by the way, the uh, Pastor McShaffrey. And just to point that out to make it clear, he is not saying that the English of the King James Version is the authority. But there are people who do that type of mistake, and those people would similarly question the Greek and Hebrew along the same lines as the Roman Catholics of Turretin's day. The ones he refers to as papists, they want the Vulgate, so they try to promote the Vulgate. Now, thankfully, the Roman Catholic Church has abandoned that argument that was so important to the Roman Catholic Church in that century and adopted the Greek and Hebrew priority. And you see that in the new Vulgate which ends up being following the Protestant text rather than the traditional Vulgate text in, at a number of points. So again, he's uh, he does distinguish between the original texts uh, as to the autographs, which he acknowledges don't exist, but all the apographs. The apographs are the copies. And the question's not are there sources so pure that no fault has crept in to the many sacred manuscripts. He acknowledges that there have been. The question is whether they've been so corrupted by copyists or carelessness or by Jews and heretics through malice that they can be no longer regarded as the judge. And he is denying that, as do we. We agree with Churton on that point. And again, when it says, how do you address these errors that, that have crept in through carelessness, et cetera, they're not universal to all in all the manuscripts and they can be corrected by collation. Textual criticism is the solution he suggests. Now, he argues on, about certain verses and it's fair to note that someone like myself, even though I'm a fan of Turton, I don't end up agreeing with him on every one of his analyses. For example, on the question of 1 John 5, 7, he says that uh, even Sixtus Senes Senensis acknowledges they are contained in all the co Greek copies from the very times of the apostles. But Anturitan seems to, borrowing from Sixtus Senensis, acknowledge this fact. But the problem is Sixtus Sinensis, however reliable he might be, however much of a scholar he might be, and however reasonable it was for Turgeon to rely on him, he's just wrong. This is not the case. And it, it was mistaken of, of the real Francis Turgeon to rely on that claim. And 
I'd actually heard people or seen people try to suggest, oh, maybe Turretin had access to things we don't have. Maybe he had access to the truth we don't know. And honestly, this kind of skepticism as an attempted defense is just unworthy. It's, it's unworthy of more serious rebuttal. But in any event, uh, what we can glean from this discussion is just that the methodology that Turretin's arguing from, he's saying that all the copies had it, is wrong. So that should lead him, if he's being, if this is not just a pretext, that should lead him to re-examine this question if you were presented with the full picture. Similarly, uh, here, this is a question of Mark 16. He says it may be missing from several copies in the time of Jerome, but now it occurs in all, even in the Syriac, and it's clearly necessary to complete the history. So he's saying, well, maybe there was a time when it wasn't in some of the copies, but now it's in all of the copies. Now this is an interesting weighting of the manuscripts. It's not the weighting that I personally would give. I would be more interested in what do the old copies say rather than what do the later copies say. But it is a significant fact that there is a widespread late acceptance of the end of Mark. And we shouldn't just blow that off or, or pretend it's not important. Even if we end up not agreeing finally with the church on this point, notice, notice though his, his argument is an appeal to the textual evidence. And again, with the, the history of the adulteress, he says it's in, not in the Syriac version, sure, but it's found in all the Greek manuscripts. But again, he's not correct about that. The story of the history of the adulteress, the woman caught in adultery, is not in all the Greek manuscripts. So he makes an appeal to the manuscripts. His appeal to the evidence, though, is flawed. It's not that his presuppositions are wrong. It's that his appeal, his use of the evidence is wrong because he doesn't know the evidence correctly. He doesn't understand the evidence correctly. And it's fine. That's a legitimate disagreement between brethren. But it, it is problematic when, we when people take these disti distinctions and differences and try to make something more of them. I will, uh, I guess I'll, for the moment, I'll pass over the rest of Turton's remarks, just in the interest of time, in the interest of making sure I get off of here before my internet connection runs out. I'm gonna check quickly to see if there have been any comments offered through Facebook. Hopefully that won't cause any echoes here. Uh, sometimes it does. Uh, but in any event, I don't see any live questions and I do appreciate the the attention that people give the, the posts, I appreciate the fact that people do listen in on these and do think about what I'm saying. I hope that my comments, criticisms, corrections, however you want to look at it, will be taken in the spirit in which they're offered as attempts to encourage people like Pastor McShaffrey and uh, other OPC ministers to rejoin the rest of the flock, the rest of the herd, whatever animal husbandry metaphor you want to use, I would like him to rejoin us because we are the ones standing with Turretin on these points. We're not standing with Turretin on the conclusion of every textual question. We're not standing with him on 1 John 5, 7. He is just wrong about that and are happy to explain why. 
and will do so from his same scriptural presuppositions and from the same evidence that he offers in support of his argument and will explain why his conclusion was wrong. And we can do so with grace. We can do so fairly. We can do so honestly, not motivated by a desire that we don't want to have First John 5, 7 in our Bible, but because we want to know what did the author of First John I think that he called, I don't remember if he names himself inside the book, but we'll just say John, it's the traditional name. So we want to know what John wrote. We don't want to know what a Latin copyist a couple hundred years later wrote. If we wanted to know that, we just go to the Vulgate and we accept the Vulgate reading. But the Greek manuscript reading of 1 John 5, 7 does not support the conclusion that Turretin proposed for it. And there's other reasons too. We could follow the same reason. Turretin doesn't limit himself to a discussion of the manuscripts themselves. There's also questions of the internal evidence, the harmony with scripture and so on and so forth. And there's historical questions that are raised. And he's willing to take into account, although not always to follow, the historical existence of manuscripts reading one way or another. There's a reason that 1 John 5, 7 wasn't one of the main texts that was uh, mentioned in the Council of Nicaea, for example. One might expect it to be, but it wasn't. And the most obvious answer was that the Greek-speaking folk at the Council of Nicaea didn't know about the verse because it wasn't in their Bibles. Probably it wasn't in any of their Bibles at that time. It wasn't just that there, some people had it in their manuscripts and others didn't, but most likely just none of them had it in their manuscripts at all because it wasn't originally in the first epistle of John the Apostle. But whatever the case may be, we can examine the evidence, we can consider the evidence without becoming evidentialist and making evidence the primary aspect of apologetics without uh, holding to supernatural presuppositions like Turretin did we can also hold those same presuppositions faithfully. We can acknowledge that God preserves scripture without having to conclude that he preserves scripture by preserving Scrivener or preserving Erasmus or preserving Tischendorf or preserving any other specific textual critic, whether Beza or Stephanus or any of the printers. In, in any event, uh, for those of you who have suffered through my comments to this point, I appreciate uh, your, your watching. If there are no, I don't see any comments. I hope that there, uh, that if there are comments coming through, that, that they have, that they would have come through, as they have in the past. So, since I don't see any other comments, I will just again thank everyone who's been watching, and I will look forward to interacting, God willing, with other parts of this conference in future. Uh, segments. So thanks again.